Today we'll be in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and looking um, kind of at a introductory, an introduction to the entire book of Romans, um, but also looking specifically at the first seven verses. The book of Romans has been called the greatest, lever, the greatest letter ever written. Um, Martin Luther said that it was the chief part of the New Testament. It's the, the, the truly the purest gospel. Martin Luther also said that um, it's worthy not only that every Christian should know the entire book of Romans word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of his soul. So Martin Luther was profoundly impacted by the, the book of Romans. John Calvin uh, said, if we've gained a true understanding of the book of Romans, then we have an open door to all of the most profound treasures in all of Scripture. So a lot of the heroes of the faith um, were, were profoundly impacted by this, this book. Uh, St. Augustine became a Christian reading the book of Romans, uh, as did Martin Luther, as did John Wesley, countless others. R.C. Sproul um, just, just passed away recently. Uh, 21st, 20th and 21st century theologians said, no book has had such a powerful impact on my life as the book of, of Romans. In fact, kind of locally, like when, when I told your elders here in this church that I was thinking of, of uh, preaching through the book of Romans after we finished the Gospel of Luke, uh, several of them said that the book of Romans is their, their favorite uh, book in all of, all of the, the Bible. So Romans is quite possibly uh, the, most, the most influential book in the entire Bible. It's the, the book that's arguably been the most formative uh, in the lives of more people than any other book. <clears throat> Uh, Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, late 50s A.D., probably between 55 and 58 A.D. We can kind of pin it there in all likelihood. If you look at the book of Acts, you'll see uh, three distinct missionary journeys that Paul takes in the course of that book. He takes his first missionary journey kind of locally near, kind of near the, the, um, the, the, the ancient Near East, near, near Jerusalem, uh, and the, uh, to the island of Cyprus and the area of Asia Minor. That's in Acts 13 and 14. His second missionary journey, he branches out a little bit further, goes uh, further west toward Europe, uh, gets to, to Greece and Athens. Um, uh, or, yeah, Athens, Corinth, in Greece. That's in chapters 15 to 18. So uh, missionary journey 1, 13 to 14, 2, 15 to 18. And then his third one is 18 to 21. And that one he takes a similar route, has some similar stops as the second journey uh, before he comes back to Jerusalem in chapters uh, 19 to 22. And the book of Romans was written on that trip, that third missionary journey between Acts 18 and 21. Uh, it's very likely that it was written specifically from the city of Corinth uh, that he visited on that trip. The book of Romans, uh, among other things, serves as a precursor to a future visit that Paul is going to take to the, the, the city of Rome and to the church uh, in in Rome, he says in, in chapters fifteen or in chapter fifteen, verses twenty-five to twenty-seven, uh, Paul says, "I'm about to go to Jerusalem, uh, and then after that, my plans are to come to you uh, there in in Rome." Now, to understand the Book of Romans, you got to have a, a, a you know a, a landscape, a decent picture of the city of Rome, the culture of the city of Rome. But to get the, the city of Rome, you have to understand kind of the, the Roman Empire as a whole. Um. And so we'll just kind of take, take a minute to kind of uh, familiarize ourselves with, with just the, the Roman uh, Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire was a force to be reckoned with in the, the first century, in the century before it, and the, the ones uh, following it. It kind of had this mythical, legendary status to it. Uh, the, the legend had it that the city of Rome was founded by these two guys, Romulus and Remus, who were half man, half god, kind of, uh, you know, the, these mythical figures. They were raised by wolves, and then they went and planted the city of, of Rome. Before Rome, the, 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 the top dog on the block, before the, the ancient Roman Empire, it was Greece. So ancient Greece uh, was, kind of had its heyday, uh, you know, several centuries before uh, the, the birth of Christ. Ancient Greece was kind of the, the, the top dog in the ancient Near East. It was the, ancient Greece was kind of the thinking man's, uh, you know, empire, right? It, it, all of the philosophers, you know, um, 
Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, these are all Greek philosophers. Philosophers were kind of in their element in the Greek empire, heavy thinkers, high IQ, sit around. You know, what is the nature of, what's the nature of man? What's the nature of life itself? How can we know that we exist? What does it mean to exist? What's the, what does it mean to know something, right? Forms and shadow, like all of these, like the, the, the Greek, uh, you know, the ancient Greece was all about thinking and philosophy. It's kind of artsy, kind of contemplative. Then the Romans came in with weapons and armor and conquered them and said, what do you think about that? Because, so they came, so Ro- Rome was kind of the, um, uh, you know, set apart from Greece in that, uh, yeah, warriors, soldiers, gladiators, builders, construction workers, they, they conquered cities, they uh, would, would then tax those cities relentlessly and gather all of their uh, resources to then fund their army, grow their army, expand even further to go conquer other cities and other civilizations. And part of the, part of the orientation process when the Roman Empire would kind of absorb a city or a civilization into it, part of the orientation process uh, is that they would, go to, they would make everyone bow their knee to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. Right? You, can, you're, you can worship whatever god you want, whatever weird, backwoods, rural god that you, you know, hillbillies were worshiping before we got here. You can keep worshiping him, keep worshiping them, but you have to worship Caesar with them. You have to add Caesar to your lineup of, of gods. And that's kind of how they kept everyone in line in the Roman Empire. Is everyone has to say, Caesar is Lord. It's kind of a power move. We're going to make sure that everyone kind of acknowledges that. And the deal was... You worship Caesar, you stay in line, you pay your rent on time, and we will take care of, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll protect you, right? We will we'll keep some semblance of order throughout the empire. We'll make sure that you don't get invaded by Vikings or whatever else, right? You know, you, you worship Caesar, you pay your tribute, and we will keep order. We'll make sure that you kind of, you know, can stay in this admittedly, impoverished subsistence level that we're keeping you at, but at least you're safe. At least you're not going to be, you know, taken over and killed by someone else. And so that's the, that's the Roman Empire and the, the heart of it, right? The, the, the heart that all the blood kind of flowed through, it pumped everything, was the city of Rome. And so Rome is, is where Caesar lived. Rome is where the senators lived, the, the aristocrats, right? The, the, the city of Rome sat atop this kind of worldwide or, or at least ancient Near Eastern worldwide power structure. All of the money flowed from the outer reaches of the empire into the city of Rome and, and dominance and kind of unilateral you know, orders flowed from the city of Rome out into the outer reaches of the Roman Empire. And so this letter, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, was written to a church that was planted right in the middle of that city, that space right there, filled with, you know, politicians and billionaires and celebrities, but also filled with, you know, laborers and blue-collar workers and, and poor people. That's kind of the makeup of the city of Rome. The church in Rome uh, was made up both of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And there were a significant disagreements because of that, right? Because of the, the kind of plurality and the diversity that existed within the church, there were significant... They, they all agreed on one thing, which was kind of the one thing that agreeing on kind of would invite persecution and trouble and strife, which was... We all agree that we should not worship Caesar. We should not say that Caesar is Lord. So Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians alike agreed to that, and so that made for a difficult time interacting with the city around them. But beyond that, they disagreed on tons of other things, right? Uh, What exactly is Christianity? What do you have to believe to be a Christian? How Jewish is Christianity? We get that Christianity kind of was birthed out of, born out of Judaism, but how Jewish is Christianity and how... Jewish do you have to become in order to be a Christian? That's a big reason why Paul wrote this letter, was to address those tensions between Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the church uh, in Rome. And so it was kind of his definitive, like, I'm going to outline and specify the gospel that I'm proclaiming, the gospel that Christians believe, and I'm going to work through the implications of that gospel. So all kinds of questions like... 
How is a person saved? How, how is a, a sinful human being brought into the presence of a holy God? Is it by being Jewish, being, by following the law, by being a good person, by, you know, being sincere, right? Is it like, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in believing it? Nice to other people. How's a person saved? How, how can a person be brought into the presence of God? How, how can a God who is holy and righteous and therefore completely incompatible with sin, how can that God welcome sinners into his, his presence? How can we know God, have a relationship with God, despite the fact that we lack the righteousness that God's righteousness requires God to require? Right? How, can, how can, can sinful man and a holy God coexist together? And then, depending on your answers to those questions, Paul, right? those are the questions where, so depending on your answers to those, we have more. Right? What happens to a person once they get saved? Do they go on living like they are, the same way that they were before? Or does their life change? And if so, how and, and why? And, and depending on how you answer, you know, depending on how, how Jewish uh, is Christianity, how much of a Jew does a person have to become in order to become a Christian, what does that say about Israel? If Gentiles can be saved without becoming Jewish, then what happens to them? What happens to Israel? Are they just written out of God's plan forever? What's their, what's their deal? And, and how are we supposed to live? How are Christians supposed to relate to one another and to the world and to the, the government and to, to unbelievers, right? Lots and lots of questions about the gospel and about the implications of the gospel that the church in Rome were wrestling with, that really all of the churches in the ancient world were wrestling with, but specifically the church in Rome, and Paul is writing to address them. It's a, it's a letter from Paul written during his third missionary journey to the church in Rome, informing them of his plans to visit and addressing some of the theological and cultural issues that they're dealing with. Now, in terms of structure, in terms of an outline for the book of Romans, there's tons of them. Uh, I, I must outlines that I've kind of, you know, read and kind of considered over the last few weeks. Some of them are super granular, right? Like, uh, I mean, break it down by chapter, by passage, by verse even. And so we'll probably develop a, some pretty extensive outlines and kind of understandings of the book, but, but the, the, one of the simpler ones that I thought was helpful to start with was by John Stott, who said that uh, you've got kind of four, four broad strokes to the, to the book of, of Romans. There's Romans 1 through 3, the wrath of God. Romans 3 through 8, the grace of God. Romans 9 through 11, the plan of God. And Romans 12 through 16, the will of God. The wrath of God, grace of God, plan of God, will of God. The wrath of God against the sin in humanity, the, the grace of God in providing a way for sinful man to be saved and reconciled to God, the, the plan of God as it pertains to the nation of Israel and how they fit into the story of God's redemption, and the will of God, right? how God calls us as believers to live in light of, in light of all of this. That's kind of the four main movements uh, in, in the, the book of Romans. Tons of subsections and arguments and sub-arguments and, and rebuttals and everything in, in, inside of those, but those are the four broad strokes. Today, though, we're going to cover the first seven verses, which is really one big, long, run-on sentence. So we can kind of put it, put it up there. Uh, it's, all, it's all one big sentence, and we're just going to kind of work through it phrase by phrase, clause by clause, because we're going to see that Paul doesn't really waste any words, right? I mean, every single phrase, every single clause in this is kind of pregnant with meaning and significance, um, ex- you know, kind of building a foundation for what Paul believes about God, what Paul believes about Christ, what Paul believes about um, how we are saved, and so he's going to use this to kind of build on, he's going to use this as a foundation to build on for the rest of the, the chapter 1 and then into the, the rest of the letter. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to just kind of tackle it uh, phrase by phrase. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith 
for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. So from Paul to those who are in Rome and who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Romans 1, 1 through 7. Let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless the hearing of your word. We pray that you would um, bless the consideration of your word as we gather together under it. We just uh, invite you, Lord, to speak to us and to work in our hearts this morning as we consider uh, these few verses. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, start with the first word, Paul. Full stop, right? Um, so it uh, might seem obvious, but it's worth mentioning the book of Romans was written by Paul. A lot of Paul's letters were written by Paul and others, right? First uh, Corinthians was written by Paul and Sosthenes. Second Corinthians was written uh, by Paul and Timothy, as well as, for that matter, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Paul and Timothy. Um, First and second Thessalonians were written by Paul and Silas and Timothy. Galatians just says it was written by Paul and all the brothers. So all these guys hanging out. We're all going to kind of write it together, sounding board. Um, they're going to help me wordsmith it. We're going to all kind of put this, this together. So Paul, and then he says, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's who Paul is. These first two clauses, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. Now the word servant of Christ Jesus is important because of the Greek word that he, he uses. This is not, typically if you see the word servant in the Bible, it would be the Greek word diakonos, where we get our word deacon which kind of has a, a little bit of weight, a little bit of, uh, you know, stature to it. A servant, an attendant, a minister, <coughs> right? Um, a diaconess could be a very high-ranking official who serves in some capacity. That's not what Paul uses here. He, Paul uses the word doulos. I'm a doulos of Christ Jesus, which uh, can mean servant, but more, you know, more accurately means a slave or a bondman, someone who's owned by someone else, you know, like property, these kinds of things. And so it's the lowest rank that you can can think of. So, so the implication is Paul saying, I'm a, a slave of Christ. I'm, I'm, you know, this letter is not about me. I'm not a, a, a man in position of prominence. I'm a, I'm a low-ranking uh, slave doing the will of, of Christ. It's not about me. It's about Christ. I'm a slave. That's kind of on the one hand, Paul says, I'm a doulos. But on the other hand, he says, I'm called to be an apostle. Meaning that Paul uh, carries a real and meaningful uh, authority. The word apostle was given by Jesus to the, the first, kind of the 12 disciples, his inner circle of followers. But there were other guys who were kind of added to the ranks of the apostles as well after, um, after Jesus died. We see uh, Paul is, is an apostle. It says so right here. Timothy and Silas were apostles. We see that in First and Second Thessalonians. Barnabas was an apostle. We see in Acts fourteen. Apollos was an apostle. We see in First Corinthians chapter four. And in order to get the title of apostle, you had to um, you had to have seen Jesus, met Jesus, interacted with Jesus personally with your own eyes, and you had to be sent out specially and specifically by Jesus to preach with his own authority. That's kind of what, those were the, the, uh, the qualifications, as it were, of apostolicity. And so Paul says, I am an apostle. On the one hand, I'm a doulos. I'm the lowest of the low. I'm the lowest ranking guy that there is. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. He's the star of the show, not me. And on the other hand, I'm speaking with real meaningful authority, the authority of Jesus himself. Jesus called me. Jesus sent me. You have to listen to me, is essentially what he's saying when he says, I was called to be an apostle. And so there's this kind of tension of guarding against abusive authoritarian leadership on the one hand, but also guarding against this uh, idea of absolute individual autonomy on the other hand, right? There, there, are, there is such a thing as abusive leaders who crave power and amass as much power as they can and use it to bludgeon people. I'm the king. I'm in charge. I do whatever I want. No one can question me. No one can hold me accountable, that kind of thing. That's abuse of power. And Paul says, I'm not that. I'm a, I'm a doulos. I'm not, a, I'm not an emperor. I'm a slave. 
So there are abusive leaders, but there are also, right, uh, in, in reaction to abusive leadership, there's some people who kind of swing too far the other way, so as to say, there's no such thing at all as good and healthy uh, use of, exercise of authority, right? Anytime anyone has any authority that's inherently bad, whenever anyone tries to use it, it's inherently abusive. People can't speak with authority. People can't act with authority. So we need to tear down the power structure so that no one can, so that everyone can be an authority unto themselves and do what's right in their own eyes because authority is inherently bad. And Paul's saying, whoa, like that, like let's not get carried away. I'm not an emperor. I'm a, a, a slave. I'm a doulos. That's for, for sure. But I do have authority, real authority, meaningful authority that Jesus gave to me. And Jesus has that authority because Jesus created you. He made you. He has ownership rights over you. And so I'm speaking with the authority that God gave me, and God has that authority because he's the creator and you are the, the creature. So if you're, if you're an authoritarian, abusive leader who rules with an iron fist and hurts people, then when you read the words of Jesus, you get uncomfortable because it's an indictment against you, against you and against your sin against your neighbor. And if you're anti-authority, no one can ever tell me what to do, right? I'm not going to submit to any leadership of any kind, down with the patriarchy, right? My choice, my truth, I do whatever I want. Then you read the words of Jesus and you are also a little uncomfortable because it's an indictment of you as well. It's an indictment of pride and of a refusal to listen to or submit to anyone other than yourself. So Paul says, I'm a servant, I'm a slave, and I'm an apostle. And those two truths are kind of held in tension. And I was set apart for the gospel of God. Prophets and priests in the Old Testament were set apart to proclaim the word of God to the people of God, to do the work of ministry and offer sacrifices in the temple so that people could be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God. And, and Paul's saying, just like those people were set apart for those offices, so too I have been set apart to be an apostle. I've been set apart. I've been sent on a mission to proclaim the gospel like the prophets did. I've been set apart to do ministry like the, like the priests did and see to it that people can be forgiven of their sin and reconciled to God like, like the priests did. I'm set apart for the gospel. The gospel specifically, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he's saying, this gospel that I'm preaching, this gospel that I'm going to unpack, this gospel about Jesus and who he is and what he has done for sinners and how he died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God and how he was raised from the dead in victory over Satan and sin and death so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God if we trust in Christ. This, this gospel that you're going to read about throughout the book of Romans, it's not something that I made up. It's not something that I arbitrarily kind of whipped together, right? It was promised beforehand in the Old Testament. It is the next step in the redemptive plan that God has been working out all along ever since the Garden of, of Eden. A lot of people that look at the Bible and kind of see it as disconnected parts that have little to do with one another. The, the, God, of the, the God of the New Testament is nice and loving, Right? and, and um, gracious and, and merciful. Read books like the Gospel of John and Philippians and Ephesians and you feel good, right? It's a God who forgives, a God who turns the other cheek, a God who loves. But the God of the Old Testament is mean and wrath and judgment and he's fire coming down from heaven, consuming cities. So Old Testament God is mean and harsh and the New Testament God is nice and, and gentle. That's not true. I mean, according to Paul here, there's continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I mean, for starters, there are tons of places where we see God demonstrating 
kindness and mercy and patience and long-suffering in the Old Testament, being gracious to his people, bearing with them, forgiving their rebellion, forgiving their hard hearts. Tons of places where God lovingly draws his people to himself, even though he has every reason and every opportunity to punish them in the Old Testament. We see mercy and grace. And in the New Testament, we see tons of examples of judgment and, and even wrath, right? Jesus uses harsh words with the Pharisees and religious leaders, right? Um, There's instructions for the church to practice church discipline and see to it that people who identify as Christians but who are living in unrepentant sin are are removed from from their midst firmly and decisively. In the book of Revelation, Jesus returns With a sword of judgment, he destroys his enemies and kills them. He stacks their bodies up on a huge mound, and birds come and feast on them in Revelation chapter 19. And their blood is flowing from where he's crushed them several feet high off the ground for hundreds and hundreds of miles in Revelation chapter 14. So, So there's tons of grace in the Old Testament. There's tons of judgment and wrath in the... New Testament. But when someone kind of says, oh, the God of the New Testament is gentle and loving, the God of the Old Testament is is wrathful and and harsh, the implication is that there's two different stories, two different books, two different gospels, two different gods. And Paul is saying, the God that I'm proclaiming, the gospel of the book of Romans, is about the same God that we see on display in the Old Testament covenant, right? The New Testament builds on the Old Testament. The New Testament is an extension of the Old Testament. What the New Testament reveals, what the Old Testament anticipates. Which is why in Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve cast out of the garden, and God says to them, one day there's going to be a woman who gives birth to a son, and that son is going to defeat Satan. That son is going to be He's going he's gonna to absorb a painful blow from Satan. But in so doing, he is then going to deliver a fatal blow to Satan. He's going to, to win this cosmic spiritual battle between humanity and, and the powers of darkness. There will be a savior, redeemer who is coming. That's Genesis 3. Deuteronomy 18. God says there's going to be a prophet like Moses that I'm going to raise up. He's going to speak the word of God to the people of God, and they'll listen to him like Moses. He's going to stand in the gap. He's going to mediate between God and humanity just like Moses did. 2 Samuel 7, God says there's going to be a king like David who's going to reign in justice and righteousness over the people of God. He's going to defeat their enemies and usher in an era of prosperity and and peace. He'll be a man after God's own heart, the beloved son of the Father, and his throne will be established forever. 2 Samuel 7. In Isaiah 53, God says there's going to be a suffering servant who will be stricken by God, pierced for the transgressions of the people of God. Right? The, the sins and iniquities of the people of God will be laid on his shoulders and he will be slaughtered as a sacrificial substitute. He will walk silently and willingly to his own execution and be crushed by God as an atonement for sin to intercede for sinners and transgressors. Right? All throughout the Old Testament, if you take a, a panoramic snapshot of the Old Testament, you're going to see that the same gospel that Paul preaches in Romans and the same gospel that is unpacked in every book of the New Testament was anticipated and spoken about and prophesied and and looked forward to in the Old Testament. Paul says, I didn't make this up. This was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son." concerning Jesus. Not Paul, not Peter, not Mary, right? Like the the, the person who is at the center of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Back again to Luther and Calvin. Luther says, here in this verse, the door is open, is thrown open wide for the understanding of the Holy Scripture. That is that everything must be understood in relation to Christ. Calvin, the whole gospel is contained in Christ. 
To move even a step from Christ means to withdraw oneself from the gospel. So the gospel is about Jesus. And then the rest of verse 3 and all of verse 4 kind of give us a glimpse of, a picture of who Jesus is, the person of Jesus. He was descended from David according to the flesh, but he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of, of holiness. So Paul's kind of juxtaposing these two crucial truths about Jesus together. His humanity, that he was descended from David, and his divinity, that he was declared to be the Son of God according to the the Spirit. Both super important, the humanity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. Neither one can be overlooked. Together they make up, uh, it's a big word, together they make up a doctrine called the hypostatic union. It's going to be on the quiz. Hypostatic union, so the word hypostasis means uh, essence or foundation. It comes from the Greek word hupo, which means under or underneath, and uh, histemi, which means to put in place. So to put in place underneath, to, to kind of lay a foundation upon which this thing is going to rest, right? The, the foundation, the essence, the structure, right? The, the, the substance of something is the hypostasis of something. So the, the doctrine of the hypostatic union says that the essence, the structure, the foundation of who Jesus was in his deepest, the, the deepest core of who Jesus was, he was a union. He was the uniting of two things, namely God and man. Jesus, in his essence, was a a union of God and man. He was fully God, fully man, 100% fully divine, and 100% fully human. This is kind of the, the most central, substantive reality of who Jesus was, fully God and full, right? Not 50-50, <coughs> right? It's not like he was, you know... Half of what it takes to be a man is true of Jesus, and then half of what it takes to be God was true of Jesus. It's saying uh, everything that's true of God is true of Jesus. Everything that's true of a human being is true of Jesus. Jesus wasn't a human being claiming to be God, and Jesus wasn't a God pretending to be a human being. He was fully God and fully man, which is important because... If either of those elements of who Jesus was are omitted, neglected, denied, underemphasized, then the gospel starts to, to crumble on a weak foundation, right? If, if Jesus was not God, then we have no reason to trust anything that he said. He's just another... There's been a long list of religious teachers and gurus and, and prophets, right? So, so why should we consider the words of Jesus to carry any more weight than any of those other people? In fact, Jesus claimed to be God. So if he claimed to be God and was not God, then we should uh, dismiss him outright. Plus, if Jesus is not God, then like the whole, the whole problem that Paul's letter of Romans is trying to solve, the whole problem that we as a human race need to solve is how can a sinful person be reconciled to a holy God? There's a, there's a chasm, there's a wall, there's a separation between us and God, and how can we be reconciled to a holy God? And if, if Jesus is just a man, if he's not God, if he's just a man, then how can he be of any value in helping us solve that problem? If he's just a man and not God, He's in the boat with us. He's, he needs a Savior just like we do. If Jesus was not God, then the gospel falls apart because he does not have the, the strength or the capacity or the ability to save us. Likewise, if Jesus was God but was not a man, a human being, then the gospel falls apart. right? Because, because only a human being, only a man can be offered as a sacrifice, can die as a substitute in place of other human beings. We, humanity can't offer up some non-human being in our place to God and say, we hope that this non-human thing will satisfy the wrath of God against humanity's sin. 
They tried that in the Old Testament, and it didn't work, right? Hebrews 10 says, Sacrifices of animals like goats and bulls were offered every year, but they could never make perfect those who were attempting to draw near to God. That's why they had to do them over and over and over again, year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The author of Hebrews is saying, a non-human cannot be the once-for-all, final, permanent sacrifice to, to satisfy the wrath of God so that humans can be forgiven. It can't be a lamb, it can't be a goat, it can't be a bull, it can't be an angel, right? In, in a, a sacrifice that's going to satisfy the wrath of God against human sin has to be a person, a human being, and specifically it has to be a sinless perfect person, a person who's never done anything wrong, a person who has never committed a sinful act, a person who has never uttered a sinful word, a person who's never entertained a sinful thought, right? A person who in and of themselves do not deserve the wrath of God, that person is qualified to stand in place of sinners and take their punishment in their place. An animal can't do it. At best, an animal can just represent it and kind of point forward to a future sacrifice that will actually be effective. But an animal can't do it. So whatever the sacrifice is that's going to save humanity, it has to be a person. Jesus has to be fully God, or else he is not able to mediate between God and man and reconcile us to God. And Jesus has to be a man or else he's not able to mediate between God and man and reconcile us to God. So, so he has to have been descended from David according to the flesh, right, fully human, and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of, of holiness. Right? The, we have the tribe of Judah, the line of David, the king of Israel, and he has to be the divine Son of God, sovereign Lord of the universe, second person of the, the Trinity. That's the hypostatic union. That's what Paul's getting at here in verses 3 through 4. Fully man, fully God. Declared to be the Son of God, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So we saw the person of Christ, that he was man and God, and now we're looking at the, the work of Christ, what he did, what he came to do specifically, which was to, to die for sin in place of sinners, and then to be resurrected in victory over sin and over Satan. Jesus didn't just come to be a good moral example. He didn't just come to show us what it looks like to be a good person or to be a good neighbor. He did those things. Jesus did show us what it means to be a good neighbor, but that's not all that he came to do. He didn't merely come to give us a message from God about who God is or who we are or how God wants us to live. He did that, but he didn't merely do, do that. Jesus didn't come to you know, make you feel better about yourself or support your political party. Or, you know, right? Jesus came to seek and save lost sinners. He came to give his life as a ransom for sin in place of sinners. He came to stand in the gap between sinful man and a holy God and take the, the, the punishment, take the, take the death blow that was coming from God and that was meant for us. He came to absorb that and to, to bear it so that we don't have to. To be crucified and treated as if he was a sinner so that his people who trust in him could be forgiven of their sin and treated as if they had lived the perfect life of Christ. That's why Jesus came to die for sinners in their place so that they could be saved and reconciled to God. But that's not it, right? The story doesn't end just with the death of Christ, but it's also followed by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus stayed dead, if he was buried in the grave, then our salvation could not have been secured. Our faith would be in vain and we would still be in our sins. If Jesus died and stayed dead, 
then we would have no reason to think of him any differently than we think of any other person in all of human history. All of those other religious leaders and prophets and teachers we talked about earlier, they're, they're all dead, right? Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi is dead. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they're dead. Caesar, Napoleon, Alexander the Great, they're all dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive right now. Today, his, his tomb is empty. He is alive. He is existing. He's interacting. He's reigning from his throne in heaven. Jesus is alive unlike anyone else. Jesus is the only one who has conquered death. He's the only one that has been vindicated by God, right? The only one that God has declared definitively that he was not a sinner. Death had no hold on him. The grave had no claim on him, right? His death for sin was sufficient. It's been accepted by God the Father, and he himself was not a sinner. He was not merely a man, but he was God, right? When Jesus rose from the dead, it vindicated him. It vindicated all those things as being true about him. Everything that he said now has credibility, and we can listen to what he said. His death now we can be assured that it was sufficient, and we can trust in it. Jesus was fully human and therefore died for our sin. And Jesus was fully divine and therefore was raised in victory over sin and the forces of, of darkness. So that's verses 3 and 4, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Then verses 5 and following we see the calling uh, on Paul, the calling on the Christian, the Christian life in light of and in view of the person and work of Christ that we just saw in verses 3 and 4. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Grace meaning unmerited favor. God has treated me better than I deserve to be treated. God could have punished me. He could have cast me out. He could have crushed me under the weight of his terrible wrath. He could have sent me to hell, but instead he gave me grace. And God gave me apostleship. Apostleship, uh, uh, to be an apostle means to be sent out on a task, on a mission, to proclaim the gospel, to plant churches, to encourage the saints. Jesus, Paul says, Jesus gave me unmerited favor in saving me from my sin, and Jesus gave me an apostolic mission in sending me out to proclaim the gospel and to see to it that people hear the gospel so that they can respond to it. God, Jesus has given me grace and apostleship specifically to bring about the obedience of faith. So he saved me, he sent me on a mission, and that mission is to bring about the obedience of faith. Obedience and faith might, at first glance, seem like two separate categories. There's obedience, right? You can obey God. That's, that's you know, works. That's doing what God says in an attempt to earn God's favor. If you can act good enough and be good enough, then you can put God in your debt and force God's hand to give you the life that you want and the life that you deserve. The book of Romans, cover to cover, categorically denies that kind of works righteousness. The book of Romans is a treatise aiming to destroy the idea of salvation through obedience. But phrases like this are going to guard against the other error, which is to say, okay, well, if salvation is not attained through obedience, it must be attained through faith, and obedience therefore has no it has no, no validity, no role in the, in the Christian life. What matters is what you believe, not what you do. It doesn't matter how I treat my neighbor. It doesn't matter if I lie or cheat or steal. It doesn't matter if I live in unrepentant sin. As long as I check the, the Jesus box and have faith, then I'm good to go. And Romans, I mean, particularly Romans chapter 6, but the book of Romans addresses that error as well. And Paul says, it's not true that salvation is earned through obedience. That's heresy. But it's also not true that salvation is obtained by simply giving intellectual assent to a set of facts with zero repentance and zero life change. Salvation is 
by grace, through faith, entirely, 100%, no works, no merit. And that faith that saves a person will inevitably bring along with it change in your life, a newfound love of God, a newfound hatred of sin, a newfound desire to walk with God and obey him and, and love your, your neighbor. Those are the things that will come about as a result of faith. So we're saved by faith and not by works, but then the faith that saves us will inevitably bring with it good works. That's, that's the obedience of faith. It's not obedience in an attempt to merit salvation. Rather, it's obedience of of faith. And so Paul says, that's, that's what I'm trying to bring about, right? I've been sent out on a task to preach the gospel so that people will trust in Christ and then obey him as a result of trusting in, in Christ. <coughs> and the, the, the ultimate end all be all reason for why I'm doing that. The reason why God has called me, sent me out on a mission to, to see people come to Christ and to see people obey everything that God has commanded them is for the sake of his name. So the glory of God, the name of God, the reputation of God, that is the the ultimate final reason why God saves people, God sends people to see to it that other people can be like, the the, the church exists and the ministry of the church exists for the the glory of God, the reputation and the fame of God. the, The end for which God created the world <coughs> is so that he would be glorified and, and magnified and exalted and, and made much of. The, the reason why God saved us is so that God could be glorified and magnified and, and exalted and made much of. That's why the, one of the Westminster Catechism, the first question says, what's the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is about God. The, the, the gospel is not about you. The gospel is about God. God doesn't exist to make much of you. You exist. We exist to make much of God. We exist for the sake of his name. And specifically for the sake of his name among all the nations. So if the, the driving force, the, the, the engine that's driving the ministry of the church is the glory of God, well then the, the trajectory that that engine is pointed, the, the way that we're going is, is outward. It's, it's, it's world-facing. It's other people-facing. The church doesn't exist to withdraw in and batten the hatches and, and just kind of be a, a group to ourselves, navel-gazing like a monk in a, in a monastery, the point of the church, the point of the Christian life is to be outward facing, to, to, to engage with the, the world, right? To, to share the gospel with non-believers, to love and serve non-believers, to invite non-believers into our homes, to encourage them and care for them, to invite them into our church so that they can hear the gospel, right? Colleagues that work with us, neighbors that live near us, family, extended family, children, right? right? Christians should be actively looking for ways to engage with non-believers so that we can love them, serve them, share the gospel with them, and do deliberate good to them to help them follow Christ. So God called us to a mission to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong in Christ Jesus. So he's talking to the, the, the believers in Rome now. He says, I'm talking about, about you too, you who were called to faith in Christ. It, it wasn't just me, Paul, that received grace from Christ, received a mission from Christ. It was you who were called as well. In fact, anyone, everyone who belongs to Christ means that you were called by Christ to belong to him. John 6 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. I will never cast any of them out. I won't lose any of them, but none of them can come unless the Father draws them. 
So Paul says those who belong to Christ were called to belong to Christ. We trust in Christ because God has called us to trust in him. He has overcome the hardness of our hearts and invited us to believe in him and to know him and to have a relationship with him. And then finally, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Paul's standard salutation he uses it in every letter he writes. It's kind of a combination of the standard greeting in ancient Greece, which was grace or charis, and the standard greeting in uh, ancient Israel, which was shalom, which was, was peace. So Paul says grace and peace together. And in every letter, it's in that order, grace and peace. Which is, which is significant, right? Like, like we have peace because God, right? We have peace to, to live the life that God has called us to live and to enjoy the, the, the life that he's called us to because of the grace and unmerited favor of, of God. It doesn't say peace and grace, implying that if I can, if I can achieve peace with God, through being a good Christian, then, then that can unlock God's grace in my life. It's always grace and then peace, right? Unmerited favor that then enables us and mobilizes us to live the life that God has called us to live, the life of, of peace and of, of shalom. So this short little paragraph, this introduction to the book of Romans, right? It's not just throwaway lines, right? Like if you're, if you're like me, you get a book, and you immediately skip past all the, the foreword, the acknowledgments, the introduction, the little thing on the inside, you know, cover. You skip right to chapter one because you're like, that's like the meat of it. Everything else is just fluff that was just kind of thrown in there. But that's the, the, the meat that really matters will start in chapter one. Romans 1, 1 through 7 is not fluff, right? Paul jumps right in with meaningful, significant the unity of the Old and New Testament, the person of Christ, the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, the work of Christ, death on the cross, substitutionary atonement, resurrection, the sovereignty of God and salvation, justification by grace through faith, the Christian life, walking in obedience, the, the, the chief end of man is the glory of God, and then the, the, the mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel to all the, the world. All of that's in the first sentence of the book of Romans. This is a powerful book. There's a lot going on. My hope and my prayer as we journey through it together is that the Lord will use it to, to grow us and to help us to learn. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for our Savior, Messiah, fully God, fully man, died for sin, resurrected in victory. We thank you that you've called us to yourself, that you've given us grace, that you've reconciled us to God. And Lord, we love you and we trust you. And we pray that you would help us to live lives that are marked by the obedience of faith for your glory, for the sake of your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.